This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. What do we mean when we say move? I know we've already gone through this, but there are so many definitions, it's ridiculous. So let's get to them. Move. A pattern of dance steps. So don't just stand there, bust a move. Move. To propose formally in a deliberate assembly. Think a courtroom lawyer, I move to dismiss, all that formality kind of stuff. Move. To start away from a place. To depart. Like when you're sitting on an airplane and the pilot comes on and says, It'll just be a few more minutes until we start moving. Everyone knows what that means? No one's moving. Move. To take action. Of course we end here. This is what we're talking about. Being called to action. Being called to move. In 1854, uh, American statesman and politician and soldier Sam Houston came to faith in Christ and was baptized. Afterward, he pledged to pay half the salary of the local pastor. And when someone asked why he was going to do that, his reply was, my pocketbook was baptized too. (laughs) One of the beautiful realities of gospel conversion that we began to see in chapter 2 is that when God changes us personally, he changes everything we touch, everything we interact with, our relationships, our routines, priorities, interactions with people, worldview, and yes, our checkbooks. We're going to see that today in this story from the book of Acts. I invite you to turn there, if you would, to chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. We're in a series in Acts called Move. Acts is the primary source book for the spread of early Christianity. It documents how Christianity went viral in the first century um, in the Mediterranean region. These Christians were boldly bearing witness to Christ. They were reflexively prayerful in their dependence on God. They were sacrificial in their relationships, in their attitudes towards one another, and God sparked revival through them. So we're continuing our travels through this exciting book, this daring book. We're going to look at verse 32 and this section that actually continues into chapter 5. I'll just walk through it and we'll make some observations and finish with some applications. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Another description, we saw this in chapter 2, they were fostering a harmonious unity among them. There was a real sense of connection to and between and for each other. Now, as you read this, you've you got to think there was more to this camaraderie than just the fact that they got along with each other. There had to be more than that. They were getting along with each other because the most important feature of their identity was their common connection in Christ. They viewed each other that way. 
It's if they looked each other in the eyes and said, the most important thing about you is your union with Christ. This camaraderie is demonstrated then in their sharing of material possessions with others in the church who are in need. We were introduced to that in chapter 2. So it continues here, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There are two greats in this verse. Great power and great grace, both connected to the apostles bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, they had prayed last week. We looked at this. They prayed for boldness in the face of threats to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And apparently, God has answered that prayer. Perhaps that's one he's delighted to answer. He gave them great power to continue to proclaim, and great grace was upon them as they bore witness to Jesus. We are needy people. If our efforts to bear witness to Christ are going to yield fruit, we need the power and the grace of God. There's a tremendous difference. We looked at this last week. Dr. Schnabel's comment, there's a tremendous difference. There's an immense difference between what works and who works. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed each as any had needs. As needs arose within the church, they were met by those within the church. This draws attention to the lavish generosity of the church. It also draws attention to the openness with which they lived their lives. When someone had a need, it was known. It wasn't kept under the cloak of anonymity. They let it be known. It also draws attention to the economic diversity of the church. Some have wrongly concluded that early Christianity was a movement among the poor only. Obviously, that's not the case. As the apostles bore witness to Christ, they did so indiscriminately, casting a wide net. Among the 3,000 converted on Pentecost, there were rich and there were poor. There's some observations we can make about how the distribution of material support worked. First, landowners and homeowners sold property. In the ancient world, your wealth was not in a bank account. It was not in a retirement portfolio. It was not in cash. Your wealth was in your property. This is the principal source of wealth. They sold this. Now, it doesn't say they sold all their property, Neither does it say all owners of land and houses sold everything. As an example, Mary still owned a house in chapter 12. So this implies that there were wealthy Jews who owned several houses or extra property who had come to faith in Jesus. And second, proceeds were used to support those in need in the church. And third, the distribution was organized by the apostles. They assessed the needs of the the believers. Over the years, this practice has garnered the label Christian communism. This is different than communism in at least two ways. First, it was an entirely voluntary renunciation of wealth, unlike communism and the Qumran community of the first century. The sharing of property was not legislated. 
In fact, in just a few verses, Peter is going to tell Ananias regarding the land he sold, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The implication is that believers didn't have to sell their land or give all their proceeds to the church when they did sell land. Sharing was voluntary. Second way this is different than communism is that private ownership continued in the church. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, as I mentioned, mentions the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Earlier, we're told the believers met in each other's homes for meals. So what is mentioned here is not a renunciation of all private property by everyone in the church. We could observe the early church was following perhaps the counsel of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 3, verse 11, he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. What was happening in the church illustrates what the Apostle Paul would later tell a younger pastor, Timothy, to preach to his congregation in Ephesus. He said this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we've got Joseph, also called Barnabas, who would become a ministry partner with Paul. Barnabas is mentioned as an example of the generosity observed in this church. So you have this summary of what the church was like in their sharing of possessions. And then Luke comes along and says, I'm going to show you an example of this. Here's Barnabas. He's holding him up as a model disciple. And so this section of text testifies to the the, the church community's mutual care and the concrete expression of its unity in the voluntary pooling of resources on behalf of the community. These, These resources are used for the care of those in need. So this church is committed to declaring the word of God powerfully, boldly, while making sure everyone has access to everyday needs. But communities like this are often built on the leading example of an important individual. In this story, Barnabas, who will play another leading role as an example in Acts chapter 9 that we'll look at in a few weeks. He cares for the poor. He gives of his resources. He welcomes Paul when others are skeptical. Encourages Paul in ministering alongside him. He leads a mission in a way that takes the initiative of engagement. Testifies about the work of God to those outside and within the community. Really a remarkable example. Now when you combine the description of this church in chapter 4 with the one we looked at in chapter 2, you might think, this is the perfect church. Not so fast, my friend. Luke is pretty honest. He's pretty honest. Not everyone acted with virtue in this new community. 
There are no perfect churches. Write that down. Chapter 5 makes that abundantly clear. Take a look at it. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you have the summary statement of the generosity of the church in 432 and following. And then you've got the positive example of Barnabas. And now Luke transitions to giving you a negative example of how not to do this. Ananias and Sapphira are the negative example. Now, the land and its proceeds belonged to Ananias, Ananias, and he was not under any obligation to give it to the apostles. This word kept back is the same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used to describe Achan's sin of holding the spoil in Jericho. It's a word tied to financial fraud. So Ananias' error was to pretend that he had given everything when he had given only a part thus making himself out to be more generous and self-sacrificing than he really was. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter clearly is prophetically endowed at this point. He fires off a series of six questions and exposes the lie. And that is the sin in the story. Lie. The sin is not the amount Ananias and his wife gave. It's not that they retained some of the proceeds from the sale of their property for themselves. They were free to do this. The sin is in lying about it. Peter's words are jaw-dropping when you slow down to think about them. We can note a couple of eye-opening truths. First, there are always spiritual forces at work in seemingly routine practices of Christians within the church. When you think about over 3,000 people and the number of them selling property or homes and giving proceeds to the apostles to distribute according to need, I would imagine the number of transactions taking place was extensive. Week in and week out, these things were happening such that you could stop seeing the spiritual world behind it and chalk it all up to ordinary human activity. Behind a single ordinary gift, there was evil that results in the harsh judgment of God. When I look at this, I realize there are no ordinary activities within the church. No ordinary activities. Spiritual forces are always at work. Second, fundamentally, Peter thinks of sin vertically rather than horizontally. 
Think of all the ways we could categorize Ananias' sin horizontally committed against human beings. He lied to the apostles, the leaders of the church, how that must have called into question Ananias' character. How could they trust him in the future? Uh, you could say in lying about what he was to give, he deprived another needy family of much needed help. There are all sorts of ways that we could say Ananias hurt people. But Peter couches the act in relationship to God. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. One thinks of David's words after his affair with Bathsheba and orchestrating her husband's death, where he says, against you, God, only have I sinned. A common notion found today, and this is even within churches, is something like, as long as it's not hurting anybody, why does it matter? I don't know that that's a question the biblical writers would have ever asked. Because the very first thing to run through their heads was, how does this impact God? What does this do to God? He was never left out of the equation. He was the first one included. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. It's a piercing grace that sometimes God acts in judgment, even within the church. There were some in Corinth who became ill and even died because they participated in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In this same church, there was a man having sex with a woman he wasn't married to, all the while calling himself a Christian. And Paul says, quote, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And then he instructed the church not to associate with him. So sometimes God acts in judgment even within the church. Why? Showing us how seriously he regards anything that mars the holiness of the church. God's concern for the moral purity of the church cannot be overstated. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such, for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So Sapphira, Ananias' wife, is caught red-handed in her complicity with the scheme. And once again, Peter elevates what could be seen as merely a lack of transparency among human beings to testing the spirit of the Lord. 
This is where our lives are lived before the watchful eyes of the Lord who sees everything we do and knows every intent of our heart. I get done with a story like that and I think, wow, that feels excessive and extreme. That question was once asked to a professor of mine in seminary. And his reply was darkly humorous. He said, well, were God to continue to operate that way with the modern day church, I'm not sure there would be a church. It's a piercing grace. What do we take away from this? Let me mention three applications. Number one, radical generosity is more than the dollar amount. Radical generosity is more than the dollar amount. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira had nothing to do with the dollar amount. It had everything to do with their motives. They wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the actual inconvenience of it. In the end, their motivation wasn't really to help the poor, but to garner praise from people. Holiness is more than skin deep. It's more than just observable behavior. Radical generosity is more than the dollar amount. Charles Spurgeon once illustrated it this way. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he came to the palace and said to his king, my lord, I'm a gardener. And this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown and ever hoped to grow. Therefore, I'm presenting it to you as a token of my love and respect. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. He said, I have a field that lies next to yours. I give this field to you so that you can farm it along with your own. The gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman in the court overheard this, and he thought to himself, a field for a carrot. So the next day he came to the king with a magnificent stallion. I breed horses, he said. This is the finest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. So I'm presenting it to you as a token of my love and respect. The king discerned his heart and said, well, thank you very much. (laughs) The nobleman couldn't hide his disappointment. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. I know it's our collective desire to be a generous church. Amen to that. Amen to that. May there be no needy persons among us. But let's also make it our desire for our generosity to be marked by holy motivation. As we give each financial gift, we pray, God, may I do this from motives you find honorable. Second, the church is a movement of radical generosity. It's a movement of radical generosity. Take a look at this list. This is a list. You've seen this before if you've been around the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the promised land, the temple, Jesus, the church, new heavens, and the new earth. They all have something in common. They all were, are, 
or will be the dwelling place of God. In other words, there are overlapping ideas and concepts contained within each of them. The church stands within the genealogical line of the promised land. The church shares a common heritage with the promised land. The church is a kind of descendant of the promised land. Yes, that's Alliance Bible Church is a descendant of the promised land. Why is that significant? The book of Deuteronomy is basically a series of sermons that Moses preached before the people of Israel entered the promised land. God, through Moses, was telling the people how it was going to work, responsibilities they had and what the Lord would do for them. Within the context of this preaching that really God is doing through Moses, we come across this verse in Deuteronomy 15, 4. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. The idea was that the people would get into the promised land and there would be such blessing from God and sharing among God's people that there would be no poor among them. Now, they were sinners and they didn't obey everything. And as a result, it didn't work out perfectly. But it was meant to be a community where there were no needy people among them. As a church, we stand within the same genealogical line. We share DNA. This early church exhibited a radical generosity. They were, in essence, fulfilling what the ideal was for the promised land. And it's a picture of the kingdom breaking in. Basically, the kingdom is God's reign and his rule. It's a little bit of heaven breaking in on earth. The the way things are in heaven, where God has everything the way he wants them to be, the church becomes an outpost of that. So as an outpost of the kingdom in the church, there should be no needy persons among us. That, of course, means generosity is not optional for the Christian. This church... Alliance Bible Church, along with all those who belong to the true church of Jesus Christ, is supposed to be a movement of radical generosity. Now, I can't tell you how much. I can't tell you how much to give. We we don't go out of our way to preach on giving here. We preach on giving when the text talks about it. And neither do we try to channel dollars into certain funds I don't believe we need to do that because if we are all giving with radical generosity, it'll be more than enough to float all the boats. One of the ministries that is extremely active in this church, um, one that has, uh, I think, become even more effective and well-organized under Pastor John's leadership is our care and support ministry. 
Included within that is a benevolence ministry. I'm very proud of how this ministry is working. You often don't see it. You don't hear it. It's like the operating system of a computer. It's always going. You're just not really aware of it. And it is doing a variety of things for our people, on behalf of our people. And one of those is financially supporting those who come into trouble spots along the way. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'll say it again. If you are in need, let us know. We do want to be a revival sparking church. But I think one of the things the Lord's looking for in a revival sparking church is one that is meeting needs regularly within the church. Third, gospel proclamation and response is a precursor to radical generosity. Gospel proclamation and response to it comes first. Generosity comes second. In the flow of the Acts story, this is unmistakable. There is no community of people radically generous, taking care of each other, before the proclamation of the gospel in response to it. Doesn't exist. There is no revival, there's no caring and sharing, there's no movement of generosity that precedes proclamation of the gospel. There is no movement of generosity until people respond in repentance and faith to the gospel message. As is the case with all morality, all ethics, you cannot command people into that kind of behavior. They have to be changed at the root first. They have to be changed by the gospel first. David Peterson, in his commentary on Acts, writes this. He says, the remarkable point about this verse, the one where he's talking about um, the apostles were endowed with great power, they were preaching the gospel, great grace was upon them. The remarkable point about this verse is the implication that it was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to such generosity, not specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share possessions. The gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving in love. The gospel comes first. Generosity comes second. We see this in Jesus' teaching in Luke 12, Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice two things. People have been pointing this out for centuries. Notice two things. First, notice it says that God has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's the first idea. The second idea is the call to sell your possessions or to give generously. Notice the order. Notice the order. Notice the order Jesus puts them in. God has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Therefore, sell your possessions and give generously. Notice the order is not opposite that. The order is not sell your possessions, give generously, and your father will be pleased to give you the kingdom. Who gives first? God gives first. Who gives in response to God's giving? 
we do. This is the gospel in a nutshell. The fuel, the engine, the driving force, the motivation behind giving generously is the generosity of God. God gives first. He gives us the kingdom first. We don't qualify for the kingdom by giving generously. God gives us the kingdom first by grace, and then we give generously. Giving is a response to God's grace. Randy Elkhorn put it this way. He says, as thunder follows lightning, joyful giving follows grace. When the lightning of God's grace strikes us, the thunder of our giving should follow. There was a story about Henry Venn, who was a, a 19th century pastor and evangelist. He was once approached by a colleague in ministry, Uh, Another minister, and he said, uh, this minister said, Mr. Venn, I don't know how it is, but I should really think your doctrines of grace and faith were calculated to make all your hearers live in sin. And yet I must own that there is an astonishing reformation wrought in your parish. Whereas I don't believe I ever made one soul better, though I have been telling them their duty for many years. Pastor Venn smiled at this man's honest confession and said to him, you would do well to burn all your old sermons and see what preaching Christ would do. As thunder follows lightning, joyful giving follows grace. When the lightning of God's grace strikes us, the thunder of our giving should follow. Let's pray. Lord, give us the strength to comprehend just how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ for us. As we look to the cross and taste of it now, may we rejoice that in Christ we are as righteous before you as he is. Thank you, Lord, for the great and generous gift of union with you. In your name we pray, amen.